You're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, the markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this edition, our featured guest is Chris Kotowski, Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director at Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on February 8, 2024. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this episode about financial institutions in 2024. Here we are at the start of another year, once again confronting a regional banking crisis, as well as managing major commercial real estate jitters. So it makes all the sense in the world to welcome back Chris Katowski to the Let's Talk Future podcast. Now, Chris was last here in February of 2023, which was another tense time for the banks. And then Chris made some bold predictions, which ended up being spot on. He thought big bank earnings would outperform in 2023, which indeed they did. And despite the yield curve predicting interest rate cuts, Chris thought rates would stay higher for longer, which has also proved to be true. So now, as we confront another regional banking scare, Chris has some strong thoughts about the regionals, about capital markets firms, about alternative financial institutions, and what all this means for the financial stability of the United States. So with all of that, welcome back, Chris. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's do it again, shall we? So here we are. We have another crisis in regional banking, this time led by New York Community Bank. So can you give us some perspective and help us understand how we got here? Yeah, to me, I'm not sure this is a crisis in regional banks. It's a crisis in a regional bank, certainly. But, you know, we have in the United States an incredibly fragmented banking system. And the origin of that was that up until 1985, banks were not allowed to branch across state lines. Uh, There were five big banks in California. There were five big banks in Indiana. There were five big banks in New York. There were five big banks in Texas, you know, and then smaller ones down the line. But, you know, every state had its banks. And the problem with those smaller, you know, more locally focused banks, the problem with those companies isn't that they can't serve their depositors well. They do that just fine. The problem with them is that they can't get enough diversity on the asset side of the equation in their loan portfolios. And so I started out as a bank analyst in 1985, and my first remit was to cover all the banks in Texas. And it it was a great learning experience because an energy crisis had just kind of hit then. If you remember in the early 80s, there was an energy boom and we had too much drilling and there was an incredible bust. And so the first couple of years of of my career as a bank analyst, I I got to watch four out of the five Texas banks that I was covering go to zero and and one of them twice, actually. 
And so, and it was the same with like the farm banks during the, you know, farm aid crisis uh, way back when, when there was a downturn in early 1990 in, in Florida real estate that took the biggest bank in Florida with it. And so the problem in my view is not so much a regional banking crisis. It's that when you have companies that are as narrowly focused as uh, New York Community Bank was, you know, that, that's when you have problems. So, and, and when you talk about narrowly focused, we're really talking about a lot of real estate, right? Yeah. The smaller banks tend to focus default to real estate lending. And the reason for that is if you think about the other two big pods of, of lending, there's the consumer business and the commercial business. On the consumer business, you know, 40, 50 years ago, people might have gone to a local bank to to take out a loan to buy uh, appliances, a TV or a washer dryer or something like that. That no longer happens. Everybody does their borrowing basically through the credit card. And that's a scale business. You know, you need to service tens of millions of accounts. And, and that's not something a, a typical regional bank can do. And conversely, if you think about on the commercial side of the business, you know, to have a truly diversified portfolio, you need an industrials group, you need a telecom group, you need an energy group, you want a healthcare group, and so on and so forth. And having all those groups is just beyond the, the capacity of most small banks. And so they default to real estate, which you know there's a lot of. And if you think about a company like New York Community Bank, you know, if you want to be a local lender and you're lending against real estate, well, what do you have a lot of in New York City? You have a lot of office buildings and you got a lot of apartment buildings. And a lot of those apartment buildings, I hate to say, are rent controlled. So, you know, if you have the situation where, you know, there, there's cost on your energy costs, there's cost on your staff, uh, pressure on your energy costs, pressure on your staff costs and so on, it's, it's going to put pressure on the net operating income, real estate owner. And, you know, so when I think about a company like New York Community Bank, it had 30 or $40 billion of, of you know, real estate in the New York area. And they've been doing it very successfully for decades. And it wouldn't necessarily be a problem if this was one niche in, say, Bank of America's trillion dollar loan portfolio. But you know, when it's a gigantic portion of a small loan portfolio, that's when you have problems. Right. And I just want to spend a second on that because, you know, commercial real estate really changed after COVID, remote work, you know, vacancies in buildings. I had I did an episode last fall with John Petrino of Oppenheimer talking about commercial real estate and he posited that this will not be a crisis for the big banks like it was in the financial crisis because of the way deals are structured and the ability to extend. Do, do you agree with that when it gets to the big banks? I, I absolutely agree with that. And for a couple of different reasons. Reason number one is just in general, the banks really de-risked themselves after the great financial crisis. The regulators became more stringent. They tripled capital requirements and they put the banks through the annual stress test. So just in general, banks are much more risk averse than they were previously. The second thing is they are big and diversified. And so if, if you look at, you know, for the big banks that I cover, total commercial real estate might be eight or 10% of the loan portfolios, but 
office buildings, which is where the problems currently are, is probably only two or three percent, depending on the company. So, you know, the great thing about being diversified is that, you know, even though you're going to take a hit on whatever it is that is going wrong in on whatever day you happen to be at, it's not going to be big. And so I'm not saying that there aren't going to be bank losses in in their office loans that's coming. We can see it roll through. But in the grand scheme of a big bank's diversified loan portfolio, it's just not that impactful. Okay. So, and now I want to bring us back to the general conversation about regional banks, because in one of your latest pieces, you basically said that the regional banking model is broken. So what can we expect to clean this up? Yeah. And and I'm not sure if it so much broken as I'm not sure it ever should have been that way to begin with. You know, we we just on both sides of the aisle, we have a very populist attitude towards banks that is against the idea of of big banks when, you know, the irony is that diversification is the only free lunch when it comes to uh, owning a loan portfolio, right? And the problem is the smaller banks just are not diverse enough. And so they need to get together and you know the regulators and the politicians and the press all need to get off this uh this hobby horse that that uh, there shouldn't be any more bank consolidation so you know and i understand why you might not want the top four banks to be acquiring a whole lot more you know that that makes sense to me you know you should not stand in the way of you know companies the size of new york community bank or comerica or Huntington or Fifth Third, you know, the people, the, the the regulators and politicians should not stand in the way of those companies getting together and forming the real and significantly diversified company. Right. So that'll really be the answer, which is what we saw the last go round with Silicon Valley Bank. We'll see combinations. Well, let's move to where things are going right. You know, you cover the alternative financial institutions, which I'm going to ask you to define for us, but we've seen some pretty powerful earnings in that space. So why don't we spend a few minutes there? Yeah, the the so-called alternative companies are primarily the asset managers that started out as private equity companies. Or if you go back to the 1980s, when I started, they were started out being known as the corporate raiders, and then they became private equity companies. And they started going public in 2007, with Blackstone was the first one that came public, then KKR and then Apollo and Carlyle and a bunch of other companies like that. And as I said, they started out as private equity companies. And you know what makes the private equity business model so powerful is that they have dedicated locked up capital that it can never be called away from them. You know, just you have runs on banks because people can pull their money out at any one time. You can have a collapse in a stock because everybody wants to sell it on the same day. That cannot happen with a private equity company. That money is committed for 10 or 12 years at a minimum. So once once the money is in, they never have to sell when it comes to a moment of distress. And that has made the private equity companies incredibly resilient in in down markets and has given them the wherewithal to be able to invest money and put money to work in distressed situations. And, you know, 
what we've learned in the last 10, 12 years since they've all become public is that that basic business model of locked up capital works really well in a bunch of other settings. It works really well, for example, for infrastructure funds. So you're seeing you know, some of these, uh, if you think about renewable energy or communications, or it, it is just a good structure to have people who have a real expertise in building big renewables plants have these dedicated capital like that. And we've also seen that it works in credit and lending. And it started out in the early 2000s, primarily with, with companies doing LBO loans. And, and that until like the mid 20 teens was its, its, its bread and butter. It's still a very important business for it. But what we're finding out more and more is that that locked up capital structure is, is good for a much broader uh, set of arrangements. You know, what we found out is that, uh, gee, like insurance companies used to go out and buy bonds. Well, if you buy some of these credit funds or other structured vehicles, you can in generate investment grade like returns with less risk and less losses. And so these companies have been growing exponentially and normally I would be afraid of anything that grows exponentially, but you can see why it's happening here. And one of the big reasons is that, you know, the banks are, are, are pulling back because they are of the increased regulation on the banks. They are lending less. And so other people need to lend more. And the, the, the alternative asset managers in the credit space, they're coming off an incredibly small base. And so when you're, when you're disintermediating something as big as the banking system and you're coming off a negligible base, you can have many years of very strong compound growth before you're even a you know, mid-sized player in the whole thing. You've also talked about an area where you want to focus investors in the capital markets firms. Who are we talking about and how do we look at those companies? To start with the names, my, my favorite names here would be Goldman Sachs and Jefferies. So we've heard of them. Yes, we've heard of them. One's a big cap name. One's kind of a more mid cap name. And, you know, if you look at the alternative asset managers last year, they were up uh, on average about 50 percent. Some of them were up 70 percent. And uh, some of the M&A boutiques were also up 50 percent. Uh, these companies lag. You know, they were up, but but low to mid single digits uh, last year. So in, in a market that was up 20. So, you know, okay performance, but but you're not it's not like they're discounting any anything great. And I think it's a good bet that during the course of 2024, we're going to see a resurgence of capital markets activity. I think it's a bet for one for one thing, because of the very strong performance that we saw from the alternative asset managers, that is in and of itself an indication that you're going to get more activity. Secondly, I, I listened to all the earnings calls from the alternative asset managers, and they say they're getting more active and there's more money to be put to work. Uh, but then thirdly, we can also track banking activity through a, a number of different databases. And one of the numbers that we track very closely is announced M&A. Uh, and there, there are two big statistics, announced M&A and completed M&A, 
right? And there's roughly a six-month lag because because of regulatory uh, issues and financing issues. There's usually a six-month delay between the time a transaction is announced and a, and the time a transaction is closed. And uh, M&A has been down for the last couple of years, but if you take the fourth quarter number and multiply by four, then you're kind of back to the level of M&A where we were in the late 20 teens, so pre-COVID. So the announced M&A has come back and that strength that we saw in the fourth quarter has continued into the first. You know, we're only four weeks into the first quarter or about a month into the first quarter, but you know, that's up 60% year on year. So I take that all as good indications. Chris, I love it because I always get a prediction from you that ends up being the tagline for the next episode that we do. And I think we just got it here with your capital markets color. So that's great. Now, Goldman and Jeffries, they're both well suited to take advantage of that. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing is once MA gets going, it always triggers other stuff. A, you have to finance deals often in, uh, in, in order to get it to complete the deal. But B, you know, when company A buys company B, inevitably there are a couple of little subsidiaries, Q, R, X, and Z, that don't fit with company A's strategy. And so then they're going to sell those subsidiaries, and then there's going to need to be financing for those. And so it just, once the M&A gets going, it, 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 creates not only the fee in and of itself, but it creates financing activity, and then it creates follow-on uh, other deal activity as well. So I, I think once you get the ball going, it has a generative momentum of its own. Fantastic. And I guess we can't have a conversation without just referencing the big banks. So, you know, I think your thesis there is still intact that the big banks are pretty well positioned and in terms of capital at good levels. Why don't you spend two seconds on the big banks? Yeah, they haven't done well as stocks. The banks lagged considerably. They lagged S&P 500 by about 20 percentage points last year. So it was, it was quite a lag. But what's, what's, what's in a surprising is if you went back and looked at my uh, 2023 earnings preview for the banks that I wrote last January, the big banks beat that with flying colors, both in terms of their top line revenues and, and the earnings. And they beat that, and you were about the most bullish on those numbers. So it's impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, what happened though, and certainly after Silicon Valley problems in, in March, is there was a divergence. The big banks did fine, some of the smaller banks did not. And it, once again, you have, if, if you look at the year over year revenue gains for the banks, it ranges everything from JP Morgan being up 20% to some of the regionals being down 20%. And again, it's it's that relative lack of diversification which makes those smaller regionals very vulnerable. And you know what what happened to a lot of the smaller regionals is that in late 2022 they were looking out at the forward yield curve and it was indicating that rates would go down 
you know, in later in 23 and 24, right? The curve, the curve was inverted, so that's signaling the decline in rates. So they all hedged against declining rates. And that then ended up not a good move. The industry and the smaller banks, they had some self-inflicted wounds. But if you look at the big banks, their, their current level of uh, net interest income, almost a third higher than it was right before uh, rates started rising. So there's been a big benefit from rising rates. We've given a little bit back, uh, meaning their net interest income peaked in the first quarter of 2023, but we haven't given a lot back and it's gonna start growing again uh, later this year. All right. Well, there's another prediction. And once again, I, I think we've covered this, but Chris, thank you so much. I'm eagerly awaiting the resumption of capital market activity. And um, I hope that we can do this again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, and so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode, and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.